Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, April the 1st, and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I am joined today by Jennifer Bray and Harry McGee from our political staff. Hi, Jennifer. Good morning. And hi, Harry. Good morning, Hugh. Now, I suppose, first of all, I haven't talked to you in a while, so um, I wanted to ask both of you what your working week is like at the moment. Harry, what have you been up to? Well, I've been mixing... Um, staying at home and going into um, Leinster House and government buildings, essentially uh, while um, most government business and most um, uh, Oireachtas business has slowed down, it's still going on. And there are regular press conferences on the government uh, uh, information centre, as well uh, as on the plinth of Leinster House where political parties uh, make uh, statements. So they have been observing all the uh, social distancing protocols, for example, they have consistently reduced the number of people who have been allowed into the press centre at government buildings. I think it was 12, it's now been reduced to eight. And I think at some stage this week, they're going to go on to virtual conferencing, uh, which means that we will be doing, as we're doing now, uh, they will be essentially um, doing uh, conferences by Zoom or by some other uh, uh, social media platform like Google Hangouts or something like that to allow journalists uh, to submit their uh, questions. But mostly I've been working uh, at home. Um, uh, As a journalist, I think it's much easier than for um, other occupations because we're used uh, to using um, technology, uh, to using connectivity and to using laptops. I remember the very first time I ever uh, used the marvels of modern technology with journalism, I was in uh, uh, Skopje in Kosovo in 1999 during the war there and I had a bit of technology that allowed me to um, connect my uh, computer to a mobile phone and for me that was just like the seventh wonder of the world that was just extraordinary and I was in the taxi in Skopje uh, filing back my copy for the Sunday Tribune uh, which I worked for at the time and it was just, uh, sorry, it was 2001. It was extraordinary. It was just uh, amazing. So um, we're all very familiar with technology. We're comfortable using it. Uh, we have to file very quickly these days. So we file from everywhere. So if we're doing a press conference in a car park, uh, as often as not, you end up sitting on the curb, uh, 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 drumming out your copy and sending it over. So working from a home office, um, is is uh, relatively easy. I think the thing that is difficult is the, the human contact because uh, politics is very much a human occupation and it depends a lot on your contacts and chatting with people and talking with people. And it's amazing how many stories you get from random encounters on the corridors of Leinster House or outside in, in the, the, the car park and um, even though you can contact people by, by phone call, or sometimes you can uh, contact them using internet protocols like Skype or whatever, uh, it's not quite the same 
as as meeting people and and having a chat where all types of fascinating information come your way. Jennifer, while Harry was covering the war in Kosovo, I'm guessing you were in senior infants or something like that. So your experience of, <laughs> of technology be a bit different. Yeah, I don't really have. Um, I can't compete with Harry's gritty war stories, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I, I did learn um, very quickly how to work from home when the Sunday Tribune closed in 2011. And I was made redundant. So I had around a six month period of, of freelancing and working from home. And it's like there's a muscle memory and a lot of that has come back to me. Stuff what not to do. And it is the obvious stuff, you know, like get out of your pajamas in the morning. It's the first of all, it feels like such a luxury. Like you can go around wearing your pajamas, but it's not good for the working mind. Um, the other thing is to I had to I have to make sure that I get out for some kind of exercise, whether it be a cycle or a walk or uh, even just to walk around the block because if you don't the four walls tend to close in a little bit so there's just a couple of basic things um that I've been trying to do to 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 keep it normal but I do agree with Harry like uh, what it's really shown me is how much information that I got that was from bumping into people in the corridor in Leinster House I always knew like that's a huge part of the job but when you're not seeing anybody uh, politicians you know it's it's really really difficult to uh, to pick up those kind of things, basically. And you, instead of kind of bumping into people and getting things organically, or even like the, oftentimes politicians won't return your calls and that's all, very, that's all to be expected. But you know that they're in committee room A or committee room B and you know to wait outside for them uh, if you want to get the information or you know vaguely where they'll be in Leinster House. If they're in the chamber, sometimes you go into the gallery and, you know, put up a hand signal to your ear as in ring me back. Um, so you can't do any of that. So instead, you're kind of just constantly haranguing people on the phone and it's different. Um, so that that's a bit more difficult. It's, diff- it's, it's harder to get people. So, you know, obviously none of us know how long this is going to go on for. I think that's a big part of the sort of public anxiety about it. But I think as well, when this is done, that there's a lot of things that will be hard to unsee. So, for example... Was it always necessary for all of us maybe to be on a bus at half seven and going into work at the same time in the traffic? Probably not. Um, Do we all need to be tethered to a desk the way we were before? Probably not. Was it good? Probably not. Um, You know, but so I I think it'll be really interesting to see how our lives change afterwards, how our working practices change. It will. I agree with you. I mean, my own experience is is, is somewhat different because I was stuck in the office. Probably, I mean, the Irish Times office as opposed to your your office in Leicester House. Much more than you guys were. And I find now working from home, I'm really kind of really strict with myself in terms of a timing regimen. I'll I'll go out for that walk at seven o'clock in the morning. I'll make sure I have my cup of tea at eleven o'clock and so on. Just these boring little things, just to put a structure on the day. But like like you guys, I've worked remotely a lot previously, particularly when I was a freelance journalist. So I'm aware of that kind of sense of isolation that. I think we've all experienced that because journalists do at one point or another in your careers. But I think for, for you guys in particular, less so for me, but it's still a factor, that absence of human interaction, that absence of the shoe leather, the accidental bumping into somebody, the bit of serendipity, the little snatch of gossip, which you then follow up. I mean, that's so much of your lives and your works, isn't it, Harry? It is. And um, the human interaction is an important thing. Uh, strangely enough, during the general uh, election campaign, um, I, there was a report that RTE had done uh, from Carrick Macross, and they spoke to people who got the bus from Carrick Macross into Dublin every day. They left at six o'clock in the morning, sometimes five thirty, uh, to go into work in Dublin. And um, 
I was, you know, just thinking to myself, how many of these people actually work in offices, you know, and many of them, uh, if they were trusted, could be in a position to work from home two or three days every uh, week. Uh, for some, it might be suitable to work completely remotely. The, the, the idea of kind of having hubs around the country uh, where people can congregate with people, with other workers, not necessarily from the same company, uh, but at the same time, if there's good connectivity, uh, they can be in a position uh, to do their work uh, there and maybe just have to go into the office in Dublin maybe once or twice a week rather than five or six days a week. I think Jennifer is quite correct. I think the, the whole there, there will be a lot of thought given to the whole nature uh, of work uh, after this crisis is over. Looking at our own example, and perhaps we're not a great example because we're very technologically savvy in the Irish Times, but we are, we are mounting an entire... Uh, operation of a media organisation remotely. There's nobody in the Irish Times building. The paper and the uh, the constant uh, uh, news feed and the opinion and everything is being produced remotely at every conceivable level. The only physicality is uh, in City West where our printing works is, uh, where the actual paper uh, is printed on a, a, a daily basis. But that will give people pause for thought once the crisis is finished in terms of the nature of work. And already, I mean, if you start going through, uh, I'm interested in this in this subject. And if you go through the internet and through news organisations and through journals, there's already a, a wealth of information on this very subject about how work uh, will be constituted in the future. So if there's one small gleam of light that has shone through this period of darkness, perhaps uh, this uh, is it. But the funny thing is that um, uh, betwixt and between, uh, the, the, the old-fashioned, old-world business of politics has continued. And one of the things that's dominated our thoughts over the past couple of weeks has been the old shilly-shally uh, government formation stuff that has been going on at the usual laborious pace. It's kind of 2016 revisited in many ways, except we have a terrible coronavirus uh, crisis uh, uh, in our midst. So that's one of the big paradoxes of this particular period in early 2020. OK, and let me ask you about that then, Jennifer, because um, it isn't 2016. We are in this bizarre situation. I don't know the ins and outs of the shitty shallying, as Harry describes it, that went on in 2016. But I, I seem to remember it did involve people getting into rooms together quite a lot and spending quite a lot, quite a lot of time together. Does the reduction in human interaction uh, and the nature of the crisis, which is all around us, surely that completely changes the nature of the discussions this time around? Oh, completely. And, you know, just as the, the public health crisis has turned all of our lives completely upside down, it's turned politics completely upside down. There were things, um, even the general election campaign or or arguments and rows that were being had around the time, be they about climate change, be they about whatever whatever example you take, that suddenly seem so much less pressing or so much, there's a lot that seems quite trivial, now not climate change obviously, but a lot of other kind of back and forth between parties and I wouldn't go in with this person and I don't like this and I don't like that. A lot of it just seems quite trivial now and I think the, the coronavirus pandemic has definitely completely changed the face of government formation talks and it's changed uh, the priorities and it's changed how people kind of uh, are approaching it. So in 2016, it was a really, really, really slow process. And uh, I remember it very well. And it, uh, part of the problem in 2016 was we had a lot of independents who were in the room who were 
newly elected and who were involved in government formation talks. And because they were new to the game, let alone being new as TDs, they're now being involved in these really high level talks for the first time. It really drew the process out. It made it really long, very difficult. There was a lot of people who were saying things in a room and then going into another room and saying something different. So that, by and large, isn't happening this time. That focus on the independence um, has really shifted. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, last week, Leo Varadkar was doing a doorstep and he said that we're not offering any concessions to anybody to come into government. All you're going to get is endless criticism and disappointment from the people and uh, hard work. And that shows you that the last time it was kind of, you know, who can we give what to, to get them in so that we can not, uh, get Andy Kenny uh, elected as Taoiseach. This time it's, we're not offering you anything. If you want to come in for the good of the country and to help solve this crisis, great, then we can talk. So the power dynamic has shifted. The other side of it is that this is the number one priority. This is the number one concern. Dealing with the coronavirus, getting, flattening that curve, as we've heard, and trying to get businesses back up on their feet and, and, and rescue the economy. Um, so the, the, the nature of talks between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have changed. Now, they are slow, but last week we saw a definite change in tone. For the first time, we were hearing about a programme for government. For the first time, we were hearing about actual substantive talks. And we know that yesterday and today, the two parties are agreeing what they're calling a common framework document. This is not a programme for government, but it is basically an outline of how a government between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael could work, how it would work. And if they can get to that stage where they both agree on the document, they'll have to bring that back to their parties respectively, get approval to then go into programme for government talks. They go into that then, they form that, and then they have to reach out to the third party. So there's a long way to go. And in relation to those third parties, Harry, um, we had Pat Leahy obviously on the podcast last week and Pat had a piece in Saturday's Irish Times um, demolishing, um, from his perspective, the Greens' proposal for a national government on the same page as Eamon Ryan had a had a piece arguing for, for the same thing. But within that, whether or not you, you, you think the Green idea is a good idea, there is a, there is a major question about what sort of programme for government given that a normal programme for government is for at least four years, if not five, what sort of programme for government you could even outline at this point, given that we don't know what the world is going to be like in three months? Well, that's very true and uh, the sands are shifting, so it's very hard to try to draw something that, that's uh, clear and definite and lasting uh, when the circumstances are changing at such uh, a rapid uh, pace. And that's something that would have to be considered uh, once uh, the government is actually formed. But what we do know is that uh, the government have squandered uh, zillions of, of hard-earned cash, that over 350,000 people have lost their job, albeit some of them temporarily, uh, that uh, certain sectors of the economy, including hospitality, aviation, uh, retail, have all but uh, collapsed. And that people are going to start running out of money soon, you know, and you, that that will have a, a ripple effect, effect through every imaginable uh, uh, edge of the economy. There'll be some very small niche sectors that will be, I'm all right, Jack. Uh, but for the rest, it's going to mean uh, uh, parsimonious uh, uh, times and for some uh, penury uh, and poverty. So uh, I was at a, an event in, in um, Total Produce up in Swords. Uh, a few days ago at which the Taoiseach uh, spoke and he was talking about the need 
uh, for a stable government and he was putting forth his argument uh, for why four uh, separate parties uh, will be required. And he said, this won't be a government of giveaways. This won't be a government that will give tax concessions. This won't be a government that will have bells and whistles attached. The job of this government uh, will be difficult. It will be very unpopular. And all we can promise the people is a period of hardship and uh, uncertainty. And all the government will get during its period of power uh, will be criticism and uh, uh, a certain extent of blowback or um, uh, um, uh, uh, resentment uh, from the public. I'm paraphrasing the teacher, of course, because he was far more elegant than me in setting out his argument. But I mean, the point was the point was well made. And that's why both uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil uh, really want to have a government that can last. And they're mindful of what happened in 2007, uh, when it seemed there was a strong Fianna Fáil government with support uh, from what was left of the PDs and independents that began to uh, unravel uh, when things start getting difficult. TDs like Joe Behan from Wicklow, who was a Fianna Fáil TD, went overboard. Uh, Finian McGrath, who was then an independent supporting the government, also went overboard. So, that, so the government found itself in a very uh, precarious uh, situation very quickly, just at the time uh, when things began uh, to become uh, extraordinarily uh, uh, tight. So Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have 72 seats between them. If they make a deal with the regional group of uh, independents, which, uh, which, who comprise of nine TDs, uh, that brings them up to 81. But then when you look into that group, it's a very disparate group. I mean, Michael Lowry is in there. Uh, Pather Tobin is in there. You know, there are people who are from very different ideological backgrounds. And the concern of the government is, uh, or Fine Gael and the Fianna Fáil, is uh, that with those alone, uh, opposition parties can start picking off vulnerable TDs in vulnerable constituencies uh, when decisions are made that aren't uh, crowd pleasers. So uh, that's why they're looking for the fourth leg of the stool as it has been described. But the difficulty is that the three parties who are potential targets, Hugh, um, none of them want to play. I mean, we had some words from Sean Sherlock over the weekend to say that uh, he'd be amenable. Uh, but uh, as Jennifer and uh, Fiak were reporting yesterday, um, the uh, Labour Party TDs had a meeting and have decided that for now, the best strategy for them uh, will be to go into opposition. So nobody uh, is interested in, in filling uh, up the dance card of Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil at present. Is it not the case, though, Jen, that of the three potential candidates to be that, uh, that fourth stool, which would be the Green Party or the Social Democrats or the Labour Party, that even given your story in today's Irish Times about the decision, the current decision for now, which I think are important words of the Parliamentary Labour Party, they're still the most likely fourth stool? Labour, Yes, yes, Labour. Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, I, I think so, yeah. I mean, that's certainly the view... Um, but I, there are some people in Fine Gael who seem to believe that the Greens will have this last minute change of heart, go completely back on what they've said and maybe go in after all. Um, I don't know if that's logical. I don't know if that's anything that you could possibly expect realistically. Um, there is a feeling in Fine Gael that Eamon Ryan wants to go in to government and that he just cannot bring his parliamentary party with him that there are a younger, a kind of more left-wing cohort in the party driven by a huge number, 
a huge rise in their leadership that uh, would rather wait it out until the next election and go in with a, a proper, in inverted quote, proper left wing government. So, you know, if you can't bring your party with you, then obviously that, and they have said that they won't be involved, so that does rule the Greens out. So, yes, then your attention naturally goes towards the Labour Party. And, you know, I think we'll learn a lot when the new leader is elected. I think then the, one of the first questions that will be asked, whether it's Alan Kelly or Aon, will be, OK, you had your meeting during the week. You said this is the situation for now, but you're the leader now. What is your position and what will you do? Will you have like even if they have exploratory or scoping meetings with the other parties, I think that will be really, really interesting. And I think another party which kind of has not gotten away scot-free, but certainly escaped a lot of the um, focus has been the SOC Dems. They have uh, obviously 60Ds and they, you know, they've, they've managed to kind of go under the radar a little bit. I think you'll see over the next couple of weeks uh, a bigger focus on what exactly is it in any programme for government that's presented to them by Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil that they don't like. What is it that they don't agree with? Um, so once I think a lot will become clear once we have the new leader of the Labour Party, once the programme for government and this new common framework document is agreed between the two parties. Then from that point onwards, the real focus will will kind of come down on that other leg of the stool that you talk about. I mean, Harry, the fourth stool, should there be a fourth stool, should have enormous leverage, like much greater than the number of seats it brings to the table, particularly if it's a small party like Labour or the Social Democrats. Uh, absolutely, Hugh. You ha- you've said it in one there. Uh, I saw somebody yesterday and they were saying if the Labour Party went in, the, the prize they would get would be enormous. They get a, a there's only they've only six parliamentarians now until the Shannon elections are over. Uh, but they would have uh, one minister, one super minister, super junior, uh, another junior. Uh, plus, they would get the opportunity of having uh, two of the Taoiseach's 11 nominees uh, for the Shannon uh, as well. So the prize for a small party like Labour would be quite considerable. And given you know the difficulties the party will have in opposition, it's a party of six TDs. The SOC Dems also have six. Uh, People Before Profit Solidarity have five. The Green Party, if they're in opposition, are twice the size of them. Uh, And then Sinn Féin are uh, enormous. So, I mean, I know that Alan Kelly comes with kind of ACDC type of uh, decibel levels. (laughs) But even a man of his vocal ability won't be able to uh, outshout all all that, uh, 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 all the other opposition parties. So, I mean, there is, for any of the smaller parties who do go in, there's a risk, of course there's a risk. Once you go into government, you're always going, you're cruising for a bruising. But at the same time, you know, there are, there is an upside to it. And uh, for a small party, you can uh, leverage great power. And they, they, because things will be so bad when the government, the new government starts, the expectations won't be uh, enormous. So it won't be too hard for any incoming government uh, to surpass the low expectations there are. I mean, I don't think the people are foolish or churlish enough to think uh, that an economic miracle can be uh, performed uh, within a matter of months or even within a matter of years, that it's going to be a slow, uh, incremental, hard grind. There won't be any rabbits pulled out of hats and and what have you. So there is a a lure there uh, for a smaller party. Just in relation to the Greens, I, I agree with Jennifer completely. I think Eamon Ryan, uh, the, the signals were that he was very keen to go into government. But I think there is a drag there uh, from the younger members of the party uh, who who don't 
see Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael as representing uh, change. And the difficulty that the Green Party has is that two thirds of its membership has to agree uh, to whatever uh, a proposal is made. And even in the most benign uh, scenario for the Green Party, getting two thirds support is always going to be very, very difficult. But but hold on a second, Jen. Maybe maybe you can address this. I'm listening to Harry. You know, in in relation to the the question of what leverage a, a fourth stool would have, talking about a ministry and a junior ministry and two Taoiseach's nominees and that. What about looking at this in an entirely different way? And yes, accepting the fact that there are tough times ahead and the Taoiseach's Churchillian statements of we're all going to have to take the pain. Um, there will be a very strong pushback against the idea that we have another tranche of austerity in the same way in the as, as we had in the years after the, the 2008 crash. There is a strong argument being made in some quarters, not always uh, traditional left-wing quarters, that, um, that we're going to need to see a reshaping of society, that things which we've talked about for many years, some of them have just happened in the last few weeks. The uh, the health service has been effectively nationalised. It's an entirely public service, at least for the moment. The uh, childcare system in the country has become entirely state-funded. A whole series of rents have been frozen across the country. A whole range of things which we were told were impossible in conventional economics are now on the table. And many of them are things that parties of the left have been arguing about in one form or another um, for years. So surely all those things are more important than a super ministry or two senators. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I think that um, this idea of doing politics as we did it before, um, with always with one eye on what it might mean for you as a party, if we go in, we'll just be a mudguard. Therefore, we don't want to do this because we'll suffer. I don't think the public really, I think they'll give short truck to that because things have changed dramatically. And I can imagine a scenario whereby anybody who kind of publicly said that over the next few weeks, when it comes to crunch time, are you in or are you out? And the excuse being, well, we're only a small party and we'll get trundled on. I don't think that will hold water anymore. And I do agree with you that things have changed so rapidly. And you mentioned that the the health service, I mean, we've heard uh, opposition health spokespeople like Stephen Donnelly talk about how when they're in those briefings with the government and government officials that they're describing this as launch of care on speed, that they're getting more done in this launch care plan in a couple of weeks than they could ever have hoped to have got done in a couple of years. We're seeing things that left-leaning uh, parties have called for, like a freeze on rents, a ban on evictions. Um, like you said about childcare, Leo Vracker said himself, some of these things will be things that we probably won't be able to go back on. So, you know, if the world is changing and if we're changing, if we're changing how we live, if we're changing how we interact with each other, if our whole social fabric is changing, then politics has to change too. And I just don't see it as logical or reasonable to say that you're not going to go in because you don't like uh, a person X or person Y. And even look at Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, this time last year it would have been unthinkable that they would have gone into a coalition together. Not, not even this time last year, at Christmas time, it would have been kind of unthinkable that these two would go in together as coalition partners, as equal partners. And here we are, it's just part of the conversation now. And I think smaller parties, there's an onus on them to move with the times and to kind of step up to the plate, to be honest with you. And especially the Green Party, I think if they're, they, they made a lot of noise during the election campaign about the climate emergency is real, it's now, we have to deal with it, we will talk to everybody. And they got a lot of kudos for taking that approach that was viewed as being very responsible and quite adult. And now it just seems that they're kind of, they've stepped back on that. I mean, is it a crisis or isn't it? So um, I don't think anybody wants another election. That's 
we can we can't have another election. There's too much to be done, and it needs to be done now. So, um, if there are any of the smaller parties that end up precipitating that, woe betide them. There's plague on all your houses. I think. What do you think, Harry? Am I right, or am I being a bit Pollyanna just to say that the kind of the normal rules of politics are going to change? I, I think now? they'll change for a while, but I, I think um, you know. <laughs> The George, Santiana, the George Santiana line about um, those who don't learn from the mistakes of history are bound to repeat them. And politicians do that all the time. Uh, you know, we learn from our mistakes and we promise never to do it again. And lo and behold, two or three years later, we go and do it again. One of the things that I think is very interesting, Hugh, um, has been the approval ratings for, for leaders around the world in the midst of the coronavirus. And it's been astonishing, uh, gobsmacking, if I can use uh, that particular uh, phrase, because you look at a country like Italy, which is in the throes of a terrible, terrible tragedy. And the uh, the prime minister there, Giuseppe Conte, has huge approval ratings, massive approval ratings. And I would have thought that his approval ratings would have gone down. But Italians think that he has been very decisive uh, since the crisis became serious and the country hit the buffers and things become very serious in Lombardy and places like Bergamo and in uh, in the, uh, the the north of the country. So his approval ratings have been stratospheric. Likewise, in Britain, we've looked at Britain and said they have they, they just dilly dallied and they had this ridiculous idea of following a herd immunity uh, approach at the start, which was quickly abandoned uh, when the uh, new scientific data came through from Imperial College. Uh, Boris Johnson uh, insisted on meeting people and going to hospitals and has contracted coronavirus himself. But his approval ratings are extraordinarily high at the moment as well. And then you go to the US and uh, Donald Trump, uh, despite uh, his uh, flip-flopping almost on a daily basis in relation to COVID-19, is also uh, enjoying, uh, for him, historically high uh, approval ratings. So then we switch back to Ireland and look at the situation as it pertains here. And the latest opinion poll, which was in the Sunday Business Post last Sunday, uh, showed Fine Gael uh, at a, an, at, at, uh, enjoying uh, ratings uh, that it hasn't seen in three or four uh, years uh, since Leo Varadkar actually became uh, leader of the party. Sorry, since 2017, three years. So uh, uh, they, it certainly uh, they, it, it comes down to perception of competence. And uh, whatever else about Fine Gael and their ideology and all of that, it's, it's, it's clear that at present uh, the public believes that the government has been competent in the way that it has handled this crisis. And I mean, nobody would suggest that we need to have an election now. Nobody does want to have one. But the circumstances have changed and changed considerably uh, in the last uh, month. And I think that if a uh, an election were to be held later on in the year, I think the, the circumstances would change. I think Sinn Féin would still do well, but I think uh, Fine Gael would do uh, comparably better uh, than Fianna Fáil, which has found itself to be in a kind of slightly no man's land at present. Sure. I, 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 I do wonder about that, though. I do wonder about that, Harry. I mean, it's interesting. I was listening to the 538 podcast, which is my kind of go-to podcast in terms of what's happening in politics and uh, the polls in the United States. And they were pointing out that Trump's spike in the polls, which he's definitely had, he has his highest approval rating since he was elected, is a natural consequence, as they saw it, of the gathering around the leader in a time of crisis, which we've seen in Italy, we've seen in the UK, regardless of performance or the previous popularities of those governments. 538 um, um, were very much of the opinion that this will have no impact, that that 
that this spike will have no impact on what happens in the election in November, that it that it will be temporary, that it will be short term. And I think there's a, there's plenty of evidence in the past that, that that is true. There is a rally around the leader effect, but it tends to be relatively short lived. And, you know, if there were an election in Ireland, which I think probably seems very unlikely at the end of this year, um, as happened with the, the with the support for the for the last government over Brexit, that would probably melt away by the time we got to that election. Yes, I, I agree. I think the, the effect is always temporary. I mean, uh, Leo Bradker did for, very well, for example, uh, in, in securing a breakthrough uh, for the withdrawal agreement on Brexit and the, the, the glass from that, the showroom shine from that uh, uh, wore off uh, very uh, quickly and ultimately did the government no benefit. But I do think, uh, you know, that it, it doesn't disappear completely. I think competence does become an issue. I think people will be aware in the back of their minds of, you know, it's the, the, the Hillary Clinton question, you know, uh, when the phone rings at three o'clock in the morning, you know, who's the person who you'd like to pick up that phone uh, to make that decisive decision? And I think that the competence question, if an election were held later on this year, would certainly be a bigger factor than possibly it was uh, during the February election. But that, of course, is all hypothetics and speculation on my part. I don't think the public would thank politicians uh, for putting their own interests and their own party interests uh, above the, the common wheel, uh, as it were. You know, I mean, I think the job at hand at, at, at present is, is to play the cards as, as they have fallen and for uh, the, the combination of parties that are there at the moment to try to find a way uh, to provide a government that is secure and that can last. And I think it does have to be. I, I, I think that the worst thing that we could possibly have at the end of this outcome is a government that has a very precarious uh, majority because it won't be able to take the kind of difficult decision that will be necessary to deal with the enormity of this particular problem. Okay, let's get down to a couple of nitty-gritty things because there are some nitty-gritty things happening this week. Uh, we mentioned Labour already. The leadership, Labour leadership contest comes to a culmination at the end of the week. Uh, simple question, Jen, who's going to be the next leader? Oh, come on. <laughs> you can't ask me that. <laughs> um, I just did. I, I don't know. Um, well, look, I mean, it depends on who you talk to. I've, you know, I talked to people in both camps and they're both so sure that they have it. Um, I was chatting to Aon or Reardon yesterday and he told me that in the last week or so, a lot of people have come over from his rival side to support him. I found that really interesting. Now, we won't know if that's true until or we won't see that borne out even until Friday, uh, which is when the ballot is held, which is when the votes are counted. So what's going to happen is all those postal votes will go to Mazars, which are continuing to operate. They have a senior council in Labour. Who are, uh, the senior council is going to go in, Connor Power, and he is going to count the votes with a video link into both of the campaign teams. So this is obviously because of social distancing and the fears about spread of COVID-19. So it's completely different, as with everything in politics, it's completely changed. So we're hoping to know the result uh, sometime around Friday evening. And uh, uh, like I said to both camps yesterday, once the new leader is installed, I, do, I think the honeymoon period will be really, really short. There won't be one. It'll be, OK, you're the leader. Now, what are you going to do? And one of the first questions they will be asked will be, OK, right now, what is your definitive position on going into government? And will you go into talks with them? But so, yeah, so we'll, we'll, those votes are still flying into H, Labour HQ. And they have, I think, 70 percent so far of the 2,200 eligible votes in. So quite a lot. 
And so you won't answer my question, but is it fair to say Alan Kelly is the favourite? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, he probably is being viewed as the favourite because he has been working towards this for a longer period of time. And he has, not saying that Aon Rodan hasn't, because he, he certainly has in other ways, but uh, Alan Kelly has put in an impressive performance in regards to issues like healthcare and justice. And we know that he has the support of very high profile individuals like Vicky Phelan. So even Aona Reardon said yesterday that when he started the campaign, he knew he was going in on the back foot to a certain degree. He feels he's made up a lot of the ground uh, since then. So he thinks it'll be quite tight. So we'll have to wait and see. Harry, thoughts on Labour? Yeah, I was struck by what Declan uh, Brannock said about the Shannon elections. He was a for, he's a former Fianna Fáil TD for Loud who stood on the culture and administration panel and didn't do as well as he had hoped. And he said that you have to. He said there's a simple mathematical process. Uh, you get all the votes that have been promised for you and then you divide them by half. And that is more reflects uh, the, the outcome. Uh, I, I think Alan Kelly, in my view, has been the favourite from the start because he's been a TD He's had, as Jennifer said, a very high profile. He's done particularly well in the health portfolio. He has been a, a person who has been able to uh, bring up issues and pursue them uh, uh, in a dogged way. Uh, uh, you know, and that, that, that has made him a, a standout on some issues, especially on cervical check, but also on other issues uh, during uh, the, the past uh, Dáil term. And Labour do need a person who can make an impact. And I think Alan Kelly has been impactful. I think Aon Oreardon brings different qualities. I think he is a uh, thoughtful politician. I think he's got some uh, very good ideas. He has uh, a very strong sense of social justice. He's based in the capital. And I think he will give Alan Kelly a very good run for his money. But I, I, I would say, in my opinion, I think Alan Kelly is the slight favourite. I could be wrong, by, but, you know, I mean, the membership is very heavily weighed towards the capital and they might, uh, they might uh, back the Jackine uh, of the two rather than the countryman. But we'll wait uh, and see uh, until next weekend. But, um, you know, the party will have a big decision to make as soon as the leader is elected. I agree with Jennifer that there won't be any honeymoon period or hanging around. They'll have to des- decide almost immediately uh, whether or not uh, the party is going to consider going into government or, or not. And that would be a very big decision for the party. It will be critical for its future uh, after such a poor election this time. Uh, the Labour Party is gasping for for uh, air uh, as gasping for survival uh, and does need uh, to have a strong leader uh, to ensure its long-term feasibility. So Jen, Harry mentioned the Shannon election. The count is underway this week. It's a bizarre election at the best of times. It's even more bizarre, probably the most bizarre election in the history of Irish national elections, I think, the way it's being carried out this week. Uh, probably senators are being elected as we speak. I think we're on the third or perhaps the fourth panel is being counted at this point, plus the the two university constituencies are being, being counted separately. Um, when we get to the end of this process, that's it. We don't have a functioning Oireachtas, according to the advice of the Attorney General, won't be able to pass legislation until a new Taoiseach is elected and the 11 nominees, Taoiseach's nominees, are are decided. But is there anything interesting, unusual happening in the voting patterns in the Shannad or is it more or less as expected in terms of the relative uh, party blocks? Um, I think it's more or less as expected, to be honest with you. Um, and just when you were talking there about the Shannad. I seem to remember some tweets that you had, was it Christmas time or January? You were letting your feelings be known 
about the yes. Shannon elections and I really agree I'm with you. Not a fan. You're not a fan. No. And I can understand. I can understand why it's um it's bonkers that the way they elect the, the whole process is is quite mad to be honest. And you know, I think a lot of the listeners of this podcast will be very clued in politically obviously. Um but obviously a recap is that there's 60 senators, 11 of them are Taoiseach's nominees, six are university seats, 43 come from these five vocational panels. And to get onto those panels, you can get in through a nominating body or through uh, the signatures of four members uh, of the uh, Oireachtas uh, Senator or TD. So, and, you know, even in the way that they're elected onto those panels is a bit bizarre because there has to be a certain amount from both inside and outside so you could technically reach the quota on one side but not get elected because there hasn't been enough candidates from the other panel elected so it's it's completely some of it is just kind of mind-boggling um and it's you know so much has changed in politics and yet this crazy system goes on but yeah so we've had the cultural and educational panel uh and then today obviously we're moving on to the next panel so uh, I think the university panel has also opened. Um, no real surprises so far. I don't think Harry might disagree, but the agricultural panel is what's being counted at the moment. Um, the former TD, Niall Blaney, was elected, I think, late last night, along with uh, Fianna Falls, Paul Daly, I, I think. Uh, Dennis O'Donovan was also uh, elected as... Um, uh, oh, Dennis O'Donnell reached the quota, sorry. And uh, Eugene Murphy, who lost his seat uh, in Fianna Fáil, uh, is expected to be elected uh, at some stage today. So Fianna Fáil having uh, a, good, a good day by the looks of it. Um, and we're also expecting to see uh, someone like maybe Sinn Féin's Lynn Boylan um, reach the quota uh, with transfers maybe from her party colleague, uh, Jerry Murray, who is expected to be excluded and um, the Green Party's Pippa Hackett also expected to keep her seat so um, that it's trundling along um, in unusual circumstances in that a lot of the candidates were advised I can to- sense your excitement there <laughs> sorry I am very excited. This is the only thing that's happening politically. No, you are. But yeah, so I suppose it's it's a it's a bit like with the sporting analogy. It's the only football match happening this week, you know. So it's probably getting more attention than than it might do otherwise for those who are interested in such a thing. Listen, a very final question to you, Harry. You're very much being charged with going along, trundling along to these press conferences uh, every day, hearing the hearing the words being handed down, the tablets of stone from the government. Does it give you a sense into what it must have been like to be a member of the Soviet press corps in the 1970s? Yeah, the, um, there's, there's a press conference in the morning in which uh, a senior official from government kind of reads out the uh, the good news and the bad news from the day. And it does sometimes feel a little bit like a, a Pravda uh, pronouncement. I've just noticed uh, that they it's gone virtual, um, which is just as well because there were no questions at the end of it. So essentially they read out all the big issues of the day and how the government has been tackling them. Uh, and there is a, a kind of a, a, a soup song of uh, nostalgia that is felt by me uh, uh, of Russian uh, regimes of yesterday, particularly when Mr Brezhnev was there during the 1970s and 1980s, uh, when I hear um, what is being called out. But from from now on, uh, they will be going virtual, so I think everybody will be able to enjoy uh, the daily pronouncement from government uh, via their uh, uh, internet uh, platform, whatever that is.
Indeed, fantastic. And, and and speaking of that, I'm reminded because this is our first Zoom-based uh, podcast looking at myself here. I really have to up my uh, personal grooming game if we're going to be doing this well, all the time. Well, may I offer a tip? Um, it is specifically for you. Not, yes. not specifically for you, Hugh, of course. You're, you're perfect in every way. <laughs> or you, Harry. You're both looking wonderful. No, um, I found this feature. This might be of interest to the listeners of the podcast who also are being subjected to many, many Zoom meetings. There is a feature in the app that you can click on that touches up your appearance. Really? Yes, really. So, top tips. How could I touch up my appearance even more? This is why it's important to have a female on the team. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for that. I will bear that in mind. With those with those wise words, we shall leave it there. Thanks to Jen. Thanks to Harry. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember that if you would like to support this podcast, the best way to do it really is to subscribe to the Irish Times. Just go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe where you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. And remember also, you can find our sister podcast, Confronting Coronavirus, in our existing Worldview podcast feed, which, just like this one, is on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and Acast, and all the usual major platforms. And also at irishtimes.com com slash podcasts. You can email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.